We are looking this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're taking a break from our sermon series in the Gospel of John. And as we are celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which we ought to do every day and every Lord's Day, and yet we do in a special way this Sunday, um, it's always good for us to stand on the precipice and look out over redemptive history and to see those great moments that God has uh, so accomplished through the Lord Jesus and the resurrection of Christ being one of the greatest. Arguably, the death and resurrection are the greatest, which we're going to see this morning. And we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great chapter about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It is set against the background of those who were denying the resurrection and were trying to convince the early church, and especially this church in Corinth, that there was no such thing as a bodily resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul in this letter, which he deals with many, 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 many pastoral issues, a professor once said uh, to young seminarians, if you want to prepare for gospel ministry in the local church, go ahead and exegete the entirety of 1 Corinthians, because there's not a problem in the church that you will deal with that Paul did not deal with in that early church. So whenever you catch yourself saying, man, it must have been great to live in the early church, just read the New Testament letters. You'll realize it wasn't that great, and we actually have it better. Um, and yet he saves, that was my long hiatus and parentheses there, sorry, Paul saves the most significant of the issues in this church for, for the very end of this letter. He doesn't want you to miss that. He saves the most significant error and his correction of it in these 58 verses for this church that he had planted and had been beset with so much false teaching and false living, not least of which now we're going to see here was the denial of the resurrection and I'm going to begin in verse 1, and I want us to read down to verse 34, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 34, the first half of this chapter. Now the Apostle Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary... I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ." Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then even the Son will also be subject to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad, companies, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, on many Sundays here at Church Creek and all over the world, Christians profess those great early church creeds. And one of the things that we confess, and if you grew up in a biblical church that that held to historic Christian doctrine and teaching, you would have confessed the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. I remember as a child confessing those, and then toward the end of the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. What, what would it matter if we took that little line out of the creed and confessed everything else? Would it matter at all if we took I believe in the resurrection of the dead out of the creed and just confessed those other truths? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to say in this chapter in a very special way Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. The bodily resurrection of believers hinges on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, there is no hope, and we are all perishing. I remember a number of years ago, Dan Brown, that's why I said it so disparagingly, he did the Da Vinci Code 
which said fiction on the inside of the cover. You didn't even have to waste your time with it. He had, he had claimed that he had found the bones of Jesus because he had found a tombstone that said, here is buried Joshua, brother of James. Now, there's about a million Joshuas and Jameses in Israel in Jesus' day. And yet, and yet he was bent on claiming that he had found the bones of Jesus because he knew if I can disprove the resurrection of Jesus, then the entirety of the substructure of Christianity falls apart. That got about two minutes on the news, and then everybody dismissed Dan Brown like they should. You should just dismiss Dan Brown. Because Jesus is risen and reigning, and for 2,000 years, the Christian church has celebrated the resurrection of Jesus as the central message of Christianity, the thing on which everything else hinges, and all of our hopes and all of eternity hinge on the Lord Jesus coming out of the tomb. Somebody noted a number of years ago that maybe the best analogy for the resurrection of Christ after his crucifixion is that that we find in those first men going to the moon in 1969. And as Neil Armstrong and his companions stepped out, that famous saying, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Everybody on the face of the earth felt like they had participated in some sense in man walking on the moon. And in a very real sense, Christ stepping out of the tomb was one great step for all who believe in him. He is, Paul will say, the first fruits of the resurrection. His resurrection ensures the resurrection of believers. His resurrection guarantees power to transform men and women and boys and girls who trust in him. And yet, as I've noted already this morning, here in this church in Corinth, there were those who were saying there is only a spiritual resurrection, that there is no such thing as a bodily resurrection. The, the best we can tell historically is that these false teachers were essentially saying that the spirit is good, the body is evil, and the goal of all people, and we hear this today in different forms and different packages, that, that the goal is for your spirit to break free from the prison of your body. Nothing could be further from the truth. God created us body and spirit. When we talk about the soul, and when Jesus says, what will a man give for his soul? He's talking about the whole of the person, the body and the spirit. We were created in the image of God, body and spirit, image bearers of God. And, and death is not natural. Uh, physical death, no matter how much people want to sanitize it, as Paul is going to tell us here in this chapter, is the last enemy. Death is an enemy that needs to be conquered. It's not just the inevitable natural course of whatever this is. God didn't create men and women to die. Paul will make a big deal about this and say the wages of sin is death. And yet there were false teachers, and they were somehow leading these early Christians to believe that maybe there isn't a bodily resurrection. Maybe it's just a spiritual resuscitation in the souls of God's people. And Paul is going to go to great length to explain both the centrality of Christ's resurrection and the logic 
of Christ's resurrection. I want us to look at those two things this morning, the centrality of Christ's resurrection and then the logic of Christ's resurrection. Well, notice there in those opening verses that Paul is now telling them, listen, remember the gospel I proclaimed to you. Remember, there was a message that you heard and you believed, that you accepted, and by which you were saved if you continue in it. And, and the message I proclaimed that you originally believed is that central message, the thing that is of first importance. Notice Paul says in verse 3, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, that is the essence of the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not first and foremost, go out, be a good person, try to be inclusive to everybody and help everybody flourish. That is not the message of Christianity. I don't care how much you are inundated with that on television shows, in classroom settings, I don't care. That is not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the central message. And Paul will come back to that message recurrently in every letter that he writes. There, there's not one letter in the New Testament in which Paul doesn't take one step forward, even in application, even in talking about Christian living, for instance, between husbands and wives without saying, this is a picture of Christ in the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He doesn't speak about one aspect of the life of a believer in which he does not go right to the central message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and how that impacts every single aspect of a believer's life. Well, notice that Paul does something very interesting. You know, in the 1980s, and if you didn't grow up in the 1980s, you were spared. But in the 1980s, it was, it was really big in Christian circles to talk about evidences of the resurrection. And and people wrote books, sometimes they were lawyers, sometimes they were businessmen, and they wrote these books in which they tried to explain the probability of the resurrection, and, and they, they talked about evidences, and, and they, they tried to convince an, a nation that Jesus was risen, and, and you have to believe that he is because here's all the evidences. And it's interesting because Paul is going to care about evidences. In fact, in verses 5 and following, he's going to talk about those numerous post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Peter saw him. 500 at one time saw him. His brother James saw him. All the apostles saw him. Paul met him on the Damascus Road. There were ample public manifestations of Jesus post his resurrection. And yet, notice this, Paul doesn't start with evidences. He starts with the scriptures. William Still, the Scottish pastor, said, Paul preferred the witness of the scriptures to that of 500 people when it came to Jesus' resurrection. Paul preferred the witness of scripture 
to that of 500 people when it came to Jesus' resurrection. Now, when Paul says in verse 3, I deliver to you that of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was risen according to the scriptures, he is talking about the Old Testament scriptures. There is no New Testament at this point. Paul is writing it while this letter is being sent out. Paul is saying the Old Testament bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Where? Well, all over. Psalm 16, remember, at the end of Psalm 16, it's Christ speaking. The eternal Christ speaking through David said, You will not leave my soul in Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. The Apostle Peter is going to make a big deal about Psalm 16 in the book of Acts. Everywhere he preaches, he's going to say, he was raised just as David said, you will not allow my soul to see corruption. And Peter's going to say, but David did see corruption. He is still buried to this day, but Christ didn't. Um, Hosea, you had in your order of service this morning, Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and... Hosea there says, come let us return to the Lord. He has torn that he may heal us. He has struck us down. He will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we might live before him. Well, that resurrection, that spiritual resurrection is dependent on the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, Jesus himself proved the resurrection from a basic title in the Old Testament, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because when Moses calls God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it is 400 years after they had died. But Jesus said, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Everywhere in the Old Testament, every time the prophets spoke about restoration after judgment, That points to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Everything is moving and pointing to that. And Paul is preferring the witness of Scripture to that of 500 people. Now, let me say this this morning. That means that if you even have any doubt whether Christ rose from the dead, that the place you should be going first and foremost is to the Scriptures. Um. You know, true believers are not immune to doubts, but they deal with it differently than unbelievers. Unbelievers try to find problems in order to continue living in their sin. They try to find problems with Scripture. Believers look at God's Word and say, I may not understand everything, but I see what God has said, and I take Him at His Word. And as the Apostle said, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So Paul is going to say, The centrality of the message of the resurrection of Jesus is dependent on the testimony of Scripture. Then, as I've noted, he goes on to talk about those eyewitness accounts. Now, that's important because the message Paul proclaimed was a message that God had entrusted to certain people, to apostles. And in order to be an apostle— you had to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. That means, let me just, if I'm the only one that ever tells you this, anytime somebody tries to convince you today that they're an apostle, don't believe them because they're not. Um, I remember one such individual claimed to be an apostle and have all these powers. He's a 
kind of well-known third-wave charismatic teacher, and, and in one picture he had his fingers taped and he had his glasses on, and, and somebody in a meme said, if you had special apostolic powers, you wouldn't have your fingers taped and glasses on because your fingers are broke and you can't see good. So, so there are no more apostles today. But in order to be an apostle of the, the original 12 and then the apostle Paul, you had to be one that was a witness. And notice what Paul says. Paul says, last of all, verse 8, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But notice, Paul is substantiating the ministry that God had given him in order to defend the significance and the centrality of the resurrection. Now, I want us to focus, secondly, not just on the centrality of Christ's resurrection, but on the logic of Christ's resurrection. You know, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul was an enormous intellect, um, and, and that really comes out nowhere so clearly as it does in this chapter. There are a lot of people who probably because their experience with Christians has been sort of a glib entertainment view of Christianity, that they think the Christian message is unintelligent. Um, Paul is going to argue in the most intelligent way possible about the logic of the resurrection of Christ for the faith of God's people. And notice what he's going to do. He is going to raise eight... He's going to raise eight if-then statements. If-then. If Christ is not risen, then this is true. If Christ is not risen, then this is the consequence. Um, I want to say this this morning. I've never been a big fan of Blaise Pascal's, Pascal's Wager where, if you don't know what that is, Pascal basically argued that everybody is wagering on their belief in God, and, and if, if I believe in God and if he does exist, then I'll, I'll be with him in glory, but if I don't, I'll go to hell, but if there is no God, then I've lost nothing, and they've gained nothing, and therefore you should believe in God. It's actually a really bad argument. Paul is doing something much better here, but something similar. He's actually giving us a series of necessary logical consequences if Christ is not raised from the dead. Now, I want us to consider these together, and I'm going to point them out quickly. In verse 12, you'll notice the first one, Paul says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even has Christ been raised. There's the first one. He's saying... If you have allowed yourself to believe that there's no resurrection, that this is it, that once you go into the ground, that's it, that you've had a great life, that it's been a wild ride, and now we're just, that's it. He's saying, okay, well, if you believe that, that means that Christ is not risen because Christ died, and we proclaimed that he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, and we were witnesses to him. But if the dead don't rise, then Christ is not risen. And then secondly, Paul says in verses 13 and 16, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Notice verse 16 again. 
He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And then notice verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, what Paul is saying is uh, everything that we are doing right now is useless and futile unless there is a risen Christ blessing the ministry of his word to the souls of his people. That if Christ is not risen, there's no power in preaching. By the way, what I'm doing right now is the most foolish thing ever. A monologue to a bunch of people who could be out golfing right now is foolish. We're out on the water. We're doing whatever. But because Christ is risen, it's not foolish It is the means God has appointed for the salvation of his people. The Apostle Paul will say faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How can they believe unless one preaches to them? How can they preach unless they're sent? And so you see Christ has appointed preaching, but Christ gives efficacy to the preaching because he's risen and he is using resurrection power through the proclamation of the gospel in the lives of his people, and the faith that we have in Christ is dependent on the effectual working of the risen and reigning Christ in the souls of his people. You know, one of the things, this is a confession perhaps, whenever in ministry, and I've, I've been a pastor almost 15 years, whenever in ministry um, I've seen someone's life so radically changed by the gospel. It takes me a while to really realize this was a supernatural work that Christ has done that I didn't see coming. And I don't know how it happened, except the risen Christ worked in the mind and the heart of this individual. Paul's saying, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then notice verse 15. Further, he says, We even are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. So now, Paul is taking it a step further. He's saying, if the dead are not raised, that means Christ is not raised. But we've preached to you that Christ is risen. And if he's not risen, that means not only that our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. That means that we are false witnesses because we have said that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, that's a big claim. I mean, Paul is saying, listen, if what we're saying is not true, then we are false witnesses. No, not one time in the Quran or any other religious text that Satan wrote. Does it ever say, if this is not true, we're false witnesses? Paul is being vulnerable. He's saying, look, everything is riding on the resurrection of Christ, including our testimony as truthful, upright men that God has appointed to proclaim this message. Notice now the fifth if-then in verse 17 and 18. Notice verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And here it is. You are still in your sins. I'm going to argue that that little clause is the centerpiece of this section. If Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. Now, What Paul is saying here, and it's marvelous, 
and I want to camp out on this for a second, he is saying the thing that you lose, most of all, if Jesus did not step out of that tomb on the third day, after being crucified under the wrath of God, the thing that you lose most of all, if it's not true, is that you are still in your sins and that you are unforgiven and that you will never be able to stand in the presence of God. Um, let me unpack that for you this morning, if I could. Gerhardus Voss, the old Puritan, or I'm sorry, Princeton theologian, said the resurrection is a public announcement to the world that the penalty of death has been borne by Christ to its bitter end, and that in consequence the dominion of guilt has been broken, the curse annihilated forevermore. What he's saying is the resurrection of Jesus on the third day was God's public announcement that his atoning sacrifice was accepted, that the guilt of our sin was taken away, that the power of sin that was broken, that Satan was conquered, that the new creation has been ushered in, and that God has abolished the curse and death forever. Think about that. When Jesus stepped out of that tomb, that was God the Father's great amen to the Son's cry, it is finished. The resurrection is God the Father's great amen to the Son's cry on the cross, it is finished. The Father is bearing witness that the Son's sacrifice has been accepted by God. That the sins of his people have been fully atoned for. That the justice of God has been satisfied. That the wrath of God has been propitiated. That the new creation has been secured by the death of Christ. And when he steps out of that tomb, God is saying this is the public declaration that there is victory and redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation and everything that we hope in rides on Jesus coming out of that tomb. By the way, I think the apostles got this, the disciples, before they knew that Jesus was raised. Do you remember at the end of John's gospel, they're, they're sort of downcast and Peter's like, hey guys, let's just go fishing. Because it's the only thing he knows how to do. And what he's saying is, let's just go back to the only thing we know how to do because he was crucified. Peter is drawing the implication, Paul is, if Christ is not risen, you're still in your sins. There is no guarantee that redemption has been accomplished. There is, there is no hope and assurance that God has already justified you. Listen to this. Voss goes on, and this is beautiful. Listen to this. He says, it is just as impossible that anyone for whom Christ rose from the dead should fail to receive the righteousness of God as it is that God should undo the resurrection of Christ itself. What he's saying is when Jesus stepped out of the tomb, the apostle Paul said he was raised for our justification. That means not only his sinless life and his atoning death, but his resurrection secures your righteousness. So that if I'm ever going to be righteous before God... I need a resurrected Savior. And when I see by faith that God has raised Christ from the dead, the righteousness that he imputes to me because of Christ is as sure and certain that it would take God undoing the resurrection, Voss says, for you not to have that guarantee that you're righteous. What does the resurrection mean for you? 
You are righteous if you're united to Christ by faith. God has already accepted you. He's blotted out your sins. He's cast them away from him as far as the east is from the west. He's thrown them behind his back. He's put them into the depths of the sea. He has trodden them underfoot. He has covered you with robes of righteousness. And the guarantee of that is the resurrection of Jesus. And it's so sure that God would have to undo the resurrection of Jesus for you to lose the guarantee and the assurance of that. That's awesome. This is why the risen Jesus could say to his disciples constantly, peace be with you, peace be to you. He is using the language of reconciliation. God has reconciled through the risen Christ all his people to himself. Now there is more. Paul has not only talked about He has not only talked about what we lose as far as Christ still being dead, as far as preaching being empty, faith being empty, the apostles being found false witnesses, and now that we would still be in our sins. But notice this, notice verse 19. The apostle now says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, There are a lot of people who mock Christianity, and they say, well, it's a crutch for the weak. No, it's a resurrection for the dead. And what Paul is saying is, if Christ is not risen, then really all it is is a crutch for the weak. And if all it is is a crutch for the weak, then you're most to be pitied because you could be out there living your life. Just like the rest of the unbelieving world, you could be out there doing whatever you want to do right now. And, and we've staked our hope on something that isn't true. And so we should, of all people, be most pitied. People should feel sorry for us for saying, I believe in a risen Christ. People should feel sorry for you if Christ is not risen because what we are professing, what we're doing is foolish unless he is risen. And he is risen, Paul says, so that we have hope in the life to come. Notice that language. He says, if in this life only. You know, the reality of the resurrection of Christ is that it secured our hope for all eternity. The Bible doesn't actually tell us much about what heaven's going to be like. Maybe don't get it from the show The Good Place either. But... um, but, but the one thing the Bible tells us about glory is that it's being with Christ. It's being with the risen Christ. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for, a place for you. I will come again that where I am, there you may be also. He is speaking prospectively as the risen Christ. That where I am, there you may be also. Now, Jesus bodily ascended to heaven. I'm actually shocked how many Christians don't know that. Jesus still has a body. Derek Thomas says the body of Jesus has a zip code. It's heaven. He's seated on the throne. He is the God-man. He bodily rose. He bodily ascended. He didn't shred his body like part of a rocket going into space. He went into heaven bodily to represent us as the head of a new creation, a redeemed people. Right now, there is a man standing before God 
a risen and reigning Christ, representing everyone he died and rose for, everyone who is united to him by faith, not everyone, everyone he died and rose for, and everyone who is united to him by faith. He is representing. And so Paul can say, look, if in this life we only have hope in Christ, we're the most to be pitied. There are two more I want us to look at quickly. Verse 29. Maybe the hardest verse in the Bible. Next to that one in 1 Corinthians 11 about because of the angels, but I won't bore you with that one. Um, Notice here, verse 29, Paul says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, what is Paul talking about? There have been like 70 possible explanations. The Mormons love this verse. They shouldn't because it doesn't mean what they think. And loads of other people have tried to say, well, you know, when one Christian died in the early church, they baptized another one in their place and they baptized on behalf of the dead. And there's zero historical proof of that. It's just something commentators like to go to. But I'm going to tell you what I think Paul's saying here. Paul has been speaking about the dead, plural. Notice back in verse 16. If the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. Because Christ belonged to the dead. He died. He died just like our loved ones die. Just like those who have gone before us died. Just like those in this church had experienced loss. He was part of the dead. So if the dead don't rise, then Christ is not risen. And I think Paul's picking up on that. And in verse 29, I think he's saying, when we are baptized, we are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if the dead don't rise, then the Son is not risen. Why are you baptized on behalf of the dead? Because Christ is risen. He's not part of the dead. And then notice there's one final one in verse 32. Notice this. Paul says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, Paul is kind of bringing these logical arguments to a conclusion by saying, here's the deal. Either the resurrection of Jesus does everything that we've said, or life is totally futile, it has no meaning, and you should just go try to hedonistically please yourself and then die. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then everything Paul has said is true, and everything that Paul has said rides on the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. Um. There is so much here for us to consider. You know, I I just want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you to meditate often on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You know, if we're honest, most of us do a really good job or a partially good job of meditating often on the death of Christ on the cross because it is so central But most of us fail to meditate enough on the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us. Um, Without the resurrection, the death of Jesus is empty and meaningless. The resurrection, remember, is the public announcement 
that the penalty of death has been borne by Christ to its bitter end, that the dominion of guilt has been broken and the curse annihilated forever. Now I'm going to tell you where this really comes home. This comes home maybe not so much when we're in our teenage years or in our 20s because we feel like we're never going to die. It really comes home the, the older we are, the longer we go through life, the more hardship and difficulty, the less we like looking at ourselves in the mirror, the more we realize our sinfulness and want to be out of these bodies of corruption and death and want to be raised to newness of life, to be given resurrected bodies, to be saved, to sin no more. This really comes home when we are facing the reality of our own death. Because that day is going to come. And it may come sooner for you than later. But what we need more than anything is to be trusting in the risen Lord Jesus. That is what you need more than anything, to be trusting in the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul is going to tell us here this morning, what is riding on the resurrection of Jesus? Christian faith, everything about your great need for your sins forgiven, everything about the power of preaching and the reality of your faith in Christ, the hope that you have to come, and, and you're making sense of everything in this world, everything rides on the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul's going to end this chapter. I want you to look there. Notice verse... 54 through 56, Paul's going to climax now in worship. Notice this, he says, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice this, There are only two words of application in this entire chapter. And he ends by saying, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. How how can you know that your service to God's people is not in vain? Because Christ is risen. How do you know that your faith is not in vain? Because Christ is risen. How do you know that you're not still in your sins? If you're united to him, it's because Christ is risen. How do you know that the preaching of God's word is not empty? Because Christ is risen. How do you know that there is meaning in this life? Because Christ is risen. I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning that the resurrection won't be this just sweet, sentimental thing together with bunnies and eggs but that you'll realize that your entire eternity stakes on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you have reminded us again of the significance of the resurrection of your Son. And Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have not only laid down your life, but that you have taken it again. We thank you that you are risen and ascending, We thank you that you ever live to make intercession for us. We thank you that you are coming again bodily. We do pray on the basis of that promise that you would come, that you would come quickly. We pray that our faith would be anchored in the truth of your death and resurrection. 
as predicted in the scriptures, as witnessed by the apostles and by experienced in our lives. We do pray, Lord Jesus, that you would increase our faith and that you would deepen our love and our trust in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.